We have a short discussion followed by Artik and Mahaprasadam. This is the whole teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Chant, dance, take prasad, then be happy. <laughs> so, tonight I want to speak a little bit about the great noble Sarboma Bhattacharya. Sarboma Bhattacharya was a devotee of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in a seaside town of Jagannath Puri, where he resided for 18 plus years. After leaving Nadia, just at the cusp of his 25th year, renouncing the world, becoming a mendicant, a sannyasin, he went south at the advice of his mother. As we said before, mother knows best. He went to Puri, great town of Jagannath, famous Jagannath deity, their largest temple in all of India, biggest kitchen at least. I know that. 56 <laughs> offerings a day are placed before the Lord of the universe, Jagannath. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu saw him as Shamsundar Krishna. So he was lost there in a sea of love and separation in Jagannath Puri. And the waves of that love and ecstasy this overflowed onto the whole of the, the abode of Jagannath on earth. The ocean there on the shore, you can go and see it today, just wave after wave after wave, just paying pranam to what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu revealed there by his love and ecstasy as to who is Jagannath. Many different conceptions of there of the Lord of the universe, who he is. Buddhists worship him and Advaitins and other Vaishnav sects and so forth. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's vision that he shared was very extraordinary. And the deepest idea of the deity, the, he revealed the emotions of the deity. The deity's inner life was expressed in his dancing, in Mahaprabhu Chaitanya's dancing. It's an extraordinary love story, the dance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and the observance of Jagannath. Jagannath is Krishna. With big, wide eyes, you may have seen the deity. Big, wide eyes, no eyelashes, never blinks. Big, he's about eight, ten feet tall, wooden deity, and his arms are in like this, and legs not fully manifest. Looks like kind of distorted. He's distorted in ecstasy. It's Krishna in ecstasy, and his eyes are wide open, looking for who? Looking for Radha. Where is Radha? And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna, avatar, but he's in the bhava, the ecstasy of Radha. Krishna has taken the position of Radha to try to experience himself from her perspective. This is Chaitanya. Krishna is sham, dark, the color of romantic love in Indian aesthetics. And her complexion is golden, magnanimous, karunya, compassionate. So sham... Krishna turned golden. Sham Sundar became Gaur Sundar. Sundar means beautiful. Beautiful, endowed with a beautiful golden complexion and the corresponding emotions of Radha. So when he came to Puri and danced before the deity, Jagannath was seeing whom he was looking for. And Chaitanya Dev was in the mood of Radha looking for Krishna. They met, but there were some problems with the meeting there, given the nature of that dom. That's another whole story. But at any rate, there, in this ecstasy of love, overflowing like a great waterfall of spiritual emotions, falling on the ground, getting up, falling down, crying and bathing everyone around him in his tears, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, practically without saying anything, converted the whole of the town. It just got caught up in his ecstasy. I say practically without saying anything because Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya was a very, very sober and learned and elderly person. As I said, Chaitanya Dev was only just turned 25. 
beautiful young man, and he had taken sannyas, renouncing the whole world and family life and walking barefoot and not concerned where his next meal will come from and so forth. And he comes to Puri and this sober fellow, Sarvabhoma, quite elderly and learned, he was a great mathematician. Actually, his name is mentioned in the annals of the history of mathematics. India is famous for its math. Einstein said, if it weren't for the Indians, we would have never known how to count. And what would we do in science if we couldn't count? So you may know numbers came from there. Negative numbers, zero, so many things. So Sarvabhoma was very learned mathematician, meaning very logical, very, what do you call it, what brain is that, right or left? Left brain, okay. Very left brain fellow, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was very right brain <laughs> to the extreme. And so they met. Elderly man, young boy, left brain meets right brain. And he thought this boy is so handsome and extraordinary and deeply spiritual, but he's young. and So if he's not grounded in logic and Vedanta science of tattva, of what's what, what is matter, what is spirit. He could get carried away and his vow of renunciation would be violated and you know the world is calling on us. So he thought to educate the young lad and the logic of Vedanta and Sarvabhama's brother-in-law, Gopinath, he uh, took exception to this. He said, you don't know who this is, you cannot educate him, he's Bhagwan." Sarbhuma said, yeah, anyway, you have, you're emotional, you have some love for him, so you exaggerate. That's fine if you need to, but I'm a sober person and uh, I'm well-versed in the scriptures and so forth and so on. So there was some debate between the two. And ultimately, Gopinath, his brother-in-law, told him, well, anyway, I know that he's Bhagwan. How? Because... I've got the mercy of Bhagwan. Like I said this morning, if God wants you to know him, then you can know. Otherwise, there's no hope. And Sarvabhama says, well, okay, so you got the mercy, so you know. Okay. You don't want to be logical, that's fine. If you have to be emotional about it, that's okay. So anyway, then Chaitanya Mahabhu intervened and told Gopinath, no, he wants to help me. So he's senior to me, elderly, but let him share what he has to say. So they sat down and Sarvabhuma taught him Vedanta for seven days. And what did Chaitanya Mahaprabhu do for seven days? He sat quietly. He said nothing. So I'm saying, making the point. He conquered the whole town by saying nothing. Because Sarvabhuma was like the guru of the king, practically. So if Sarvabhuma would be swayed by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then the king would fall <laughs> into his net of love and the whole city would be caught up. So he sat quietly, he said nothing. You see the effect? <laughs> then you start wondering, what's he going to say? Did he forget what he's going to say? Is he going to what? So this Mahaprabhu created the teachable moment in Sarvabhoma. Does he understand? He's not saying. Seven days I've been speaking, he has no questions, nothing. He just sits there and listens. So he became nervous, like, maybe he knows something, I don't know. He's so grave, he doesn't say anything. Then he made his point, you're not saying anything, you have no question, do you understand what I've said? He said, I understand what you're saying, but it doesn't make any sense to me. It is as if the Vedanta was like the sun, clear, and you have covered it with the clouds of your speculative interpretations. Sarabhoma Bhattacharya was already practically converted two things affected him. The will of his brother-in-law, who was a devotee, that he would understand. This doesn't go in vain. If a devotee wills, please, that I want her to understand, I want him to understand, it won't go in vain. And second thing, Mahaprabhu himself personally, by being silent, made him open to hearing what Mahaprabhu had to say. And Mahaprabhu said a few things then. And Sarabhoma was overwhelmed with the spiritual conception of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu became his follower in the whole, as I say, the whole of the city became under his influence, the king and then everybody fell. And so after this happened, then Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wanted to test the measure of Sarabhoma's conversion from 
dry logic to spiritual emotion and love of God. And so he went to him one morning very early. The deity in the temple rises early. Mahaprabhu went there and he took some Mahaprasad from the deity. He brought it to Sarvabhoma's house. Sarvabhoma was still sleeping. He said, Sarvabhoma, get up. I've brought some Mahaprasad. Sarvabhoma got up and without washing his hands or face or any kind of the morning rituals, he just ate the prasadam. Then he said some beautiful prayers. He very learned, so made up some prayers and glorification of Mahaprasadam. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was very satisfied. Oh, he's completely converted. He has faith in Jagannath Prasad. You see, he had faith in his logic and his reasoning and his speculative powers and so forth. And now he had faith in, if I simply eat the remnants coming from Jagannath, my life will be perfect. I don't even have to think. And I have faith in this. Mahaprabhu was very satisfied to see this. This is extraordinary conversion. I mean, Sarvama was the one who previously had gone to Mithila. Mithila was the capital of Prachinyaya, the old form of logic in India. Sarvama went there, and what they used to do is pandits would come, and they would never show them the book. They would teach from the book, because if someone took the book, then they could take it home and start their own school, and then another city would become renowned more so than Matila for being a place of learning. So they never let the book go. Sarvabhoma went there from Navadvip. He learned the whole book by heart. Then he took it back in his memory to Navadvip. And this was then the, this Navanyaya, this new form of logic. It's very famous in India. Nadia became the most well-known place for that. It upstaged and displaced Matila as being the, the place of, of learning. This is a really powerful, learned fellow who needed to have reasons for doing things, logic and things that make sense to be very sober. And here he thought of getting up out of bed, just taking the remnants of Jagannath's food and thinking that this is perfect. I could forego the rituals of Dharma Shastra and so Sarva Dharma and put it Gyaja, as Krishna says in the Gita. Mami come Sharanam Braja. He had dispensed with all of that. He had Shraddha faith. It was a Sharanagata and more. Faith in Mahaprasad. So, then what happened? Mahaprabhu was very satisfied with him. And then Mahaprabhu gave an explanation of the previous Harinam sloka. Harinam, Harinam, Harinam eva kevalam. Kalo anasteva, 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 And Sarvama was just overwhelmed by that explanation. Mahaprabhu told him to go and have now the darshan, take bath, have darshan of the deity, Jagannath. I'm satisfied. So Sarvabhava went and then he composed two beautiful verses glorifying Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. I want to speak on one of those verses. And he wrote the verses down on a palm leaf and he gave them to Jagadananda Pandit to give to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as an offering. So Jagannath Pandit was bringing the pairs, the poems, verses to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Mukunda stopped him and said, where are you going, what's up? I've got these two poems written by Sarvabhoma to offer to Chaitanya Dev. So Mukunda said, wait, give them to me. He took them. Then he wrote them down on the wall, like painted the wall with these two verses. And then he gave them back to Jagannath Pandit and Jagannath Pandit brought them to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu saw them and he just tore them up. It was a glorification of himself, and he was in the ecstasy of a devotee. So he often would react like this when people glorified him as God, a very complex religious figure. But hail Mukunda, Sarvama's verses were not lost. He was a thoughtful fellow. <laughs> you see how they were, how close to the heart they were of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. They could understand his movements. You know, he knew he would tear these verses up and write them on the wall. All the devotees then committed them to memory. And you know, I'm going to speak on one of them tonight. It goes like this. Vairagya vidya nijabhakti dogam shikshatamika purusha purana Shri Krishna Chaitanya Sharira Dhari Kripam Budhiyastvam Maham Prapadye so Sarvabhoma said in his prayer, he said, he offers his pranam to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Shri Krishna Chaitanya 
Sharīra-dhāri, Kripa-mbuddhi. He says he is an ocean of Kripa, of mercy. His form is the very ocean of, of mercy, kindness. This Sri Krishna Chaitanya. And offer my respect to him, that Purusha Purana. He is that ancient person, Purusha Purana. And he's come, implication being again, and he's given Nijo Bhakti Yoga, his own Bhakti Yoga, his own idea of Bhakti Yoga. And it is filled with Bhairagya and Vidya. Bhairagya Vidya Nijo Bhakti Yoga, Shikshartameka, Purusha Purana, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, Sharidadhari Kripambudya Yastamaham Prabhupada. So this is a curious verse. The first two words, vairagya, vidya, these are famous terms. Vairagya means detachment, and vidya means knowledge. These two things go together, knowledge and detachment. Why is that? Very simply put, we are all pursuing enduring happiness. Basically, that's what we do. We look for happiness, for joy. We're joy seekers by nature. We don't look for distress, we look to avoid distress and to find happiness. And what kind of happiness do we want? We want enduring happiness, not happiness that will be flickering, like the drop of water on a lotus leaf that suddenly will be gone, roll off into the pond. Kamala dala jala jibana talamala chapala sukha labalaghire. Not chapala sukha flickering happiness. We want enduring happiness. Now, the question is, is there any possibility of getting enduring happiness when the happiness that we derive is in relation to things that don't endure? Things that are here today and gone tomorrow, as they say, about what? Everything everything you can see <laughs> here today and gone tomorrow. So, is there any prospect then of arriving at our objective, the objective of every, every human, really, simply put. We may be doing one thing or another, but really at the bottom, this is what we're doing, looking for joy, looking for happiness. Is there any hope of finding enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure? Obviously, no. So this is a madness. We are mad in this sense. Whether you may philosophize that you're not looking for happiness, but or say it, but it's just not true. <laughs> Everyone's looking for happiness. <coughs> Never even wants it to endure. So knowledge then is what? In a very basic sense, this is heavy knowledge. It sounds real simple, but if you were to weigh in on this and embrace this, how much it would change your life? This knowledge that I cannot arrive at enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. How much will your life change? But this, embracing this one principle radically, considering that that's all we're doing is looking for happiness in relation to things that don't endure. So to the extent that one can embrace this kind of knowledge, their corresponding life will be one of what? Detachment, rather than attachment is ignorance. I'm attached to things that don't endure in pursuit of happiness, and those things are going to make me unhappy when they disappear. The more I like them, you may say, well, I like the temporary things until they're gone. <laughs> then you don't. The more you like them, the more problem it is when they're gone. Nukkalayam ashashvatam. In these two words, Krishna has summed up the whole of material existence in Bhagavad Gita. He says it is dukkalayam. It's full of suffering. And if somebody says, well, I like it. Then he says, well, ashashvatam. You can't keep it. Now what? The more you like it, the more troublesome it is then for you. So, bairagya, detachment, is this kind of relationship with knowledge. Bairagya vidya. Now, at the same time, Rupa Goswami, who has was personally empowered by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to explain what he was about. 
He's written a treatise called Bhakti Rasa Amrita Sindhu, Ocean of the Bhakti Rasa. And there he writes that Bhairagya, detachment, and Vidya, knowledge, jnana, they aren't bhakti. They aren't limbs of bhakti. They don't foster bhakti in and of themselves. This is a very strong statement. It may be perplexing to us, especially after what we've just said, because it seems to make a lot of sense that we should withdraw ourselves from attachment to temporary things. We should have knowledge. We should have renunciation if we want to be spiritual. But he says that Bhairagya and Vidya, they don't give bhakti. They don't foster bhakti. They are not limbs of bhakti, things by engaging in the culture of knowledge or the culture of detachment that you'll be doing bhakti. Now there are whole schools of jnana or vidya and whole schools of bhairagya, renunciation. There are renunciates who focus on extremes of renunciation like entapa and austerity and so forth, walking naked, that's pretty austere just dressed in ashes. You can see these kind of yogis in India, just dressed in ashes, walking naked. So they're pursuing the path of bhairagya to get vidya, knowledge, taking extremes of detachment in relation to temporary things and thinking about this, they'll get knowledge, and they do get some knowledge. Then there's a school of knowledge, the jnanis, and they cultivate knowledge to get detachment. And these are... Separate paths entirely from bhakti. So, what is Bhattacharya Sarvabhuma saying when he says, Vairagya vidya nija bhakti yogam shikshartam eka purusha purana? That this Sri Krishna Chaitanya is teaching his own form of bhakti yoga and it comes with vairagya and vidya. Is he contradicting Rupa Goswami? No, he can't be doing that. Now, all the devotees were pleased to see those verses, they liked them very much. Idea is something like this. By cultivating bhairagya, you cannot get bhakti. By cultivating knowledge, that will not beget bhakti. By cultivating bhakti, however, knowledge and renunciation will come automatically. Now, Rupa Goswami does footnote this statement of his in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu that bhairagya and vidya are not limbs of bhakti. By saying that maybe in the beginning, of one's devotional life, they might be a little helpful. Still, what does he mean by a little? He means this. By factoring in detachment from things that are not favorable to bhakti, by cultivating knowledge of the difference between the self and the body, might be a little helpful. This is a heavy statement because it means it might not be needed at all to do that. Just do bhakti. <laughs> you see, this is our material lives are such that they run, in a sense, on two tracks knowing and owning, I and mine. Our sense of I is defined by our sense of my. This is my town, my father, my mother, my sister, my brother, my job, my car, my set of clothes that I like, that's me. Our my, our sense of what is ours, that defines our sense of I. The fact of the matter is, nothing is ours. So the I that's arrived at through this sense of my, that has to be false. That is a false idea of what you are, total misconception of what you are. I and my. And material life is moving along these two tracks, I and my. We want to, by sense of my, acquire and be somebody, be something. I think I'm going to make myself into something meaningful by acquiring or by knowing. So there's material acquisition and then there's the acquisition of knowledge. Each of these only really fosters this false sense of I. The knowledge cultivating, this is more subtle, this is difficult to distinguish. People think 
material life, oh yeah, he's a materialist. He has all kinds of big car, he has a big house, all kinds of things he's acquiring. He's really materialistic. So it's pretty easy to understand how the my defines forms of material identity. But the I, the knowing side, the cultivation of knowledge, that's a little tricky because it can result in detachment. And so you must be getting closer to what you are by cultivation of real knowledge. You get detachment, and so it must be coming. But from the bhakti point of view, you know, you're going further away from where you are. This is a very radical idea. You're going further away from where you are. Very interesting because you may be coming in the direction of an identity, a sense of self that's distinguished from matter. And we are different from matter. We are consciousness. We are experience and matter is experienced. Without the experiencer, matter wouldn't matter. But we're lost in a sea of matter and we think that's what matters, having things and, and so on. So if we arrive at a sense of self that is distinguished from matter, we might think we're getting somewhere. And in one sense, yes, but what we are is actually by nature a unit of serving tendency. And if that culture of knowledge does not foster the giving, serving, sacrificing, in other words, what I'm talking about here is knowledge is one thing, ignorance is another thing, and what about love? Are we living for material acquisition, ignorance? Are we living for knowledge? That might seem better, but if the living it for knowledge is at the cost of loving, giving, Knowledge will retire action because my emotion is in relation to things that are temporary and if I realize that and I stop interacting, go sit quiet, shanti, shanti, shanti. I can lull myself into, into eternal slumber and no scope for serving, for loving. So this is why in the bhakti school, this gyan this tendency, this is well, we are cautious about this, Kaivalyam Narakayate, Prabhupada Saraswati says. Almost better to be a gross materialist, acquiring, because in that situation there's some scope for meeting devotees and using the things that you like in the service of Bhagavan and developing even though you're attached to them, using them in Bhagavan service and starting to develop a serving tendency. But in Gan, alone to itself, where will you end up? A big fool. <laughs> Knowing but missing the essential point. So there are people that are very knowledgeable and are very renounced, and they will look to be, we think that that must be very spiritual. Maybe sleep on a bed of nails, or they may get power from that also, siddhis and so forth. And we'll be, oh, he must be spiritual. He only eats tulsi leaves, sleeps naked. What does this have to do with being spiritual? What does this have to do with loving? Nothing, really. Maybe you're moving away from a gross manifestation of not loving, taking, and so forth. But it has no positive content to it. So, therefore, Rupa Goswami says, it may be a little helpful in the beginning. Maybe. And then he says, even that, what is that? Doing things that are favorable. Avoiding things, renouncing things that are not favorable. It may not even be necessary to renounce things, he's saying, that are unfavorable to bhakti. Just do bhakti, and those things will fall off in time. This is a heavy statement, but it underscores the power of bhakti. Think now of Sarvabhama Bhattacharya and how he took the prasad of Jagannath and he said, this is it, I just take prasad and my life will be perfect. Just honoring the remnants of the deity's food stuff. Uddhava says in the Gita, or in the Bhagavatam, Uddhava Gita, in Srimad Bhagavatam, 11th Canto, he says, just by wearing the vestments that were once worn by the deity, we will transcend entirely material existence. Can you imagine that? We dress the deity in beautiful silks and so forth, and you just take that and you walk around in silks and you will get mukti and more. Hmm? What would those naked you know, yogis say to that? 
they cannot relate to that. They cannot, you see, they, they just cannot, this doesn't fit in their head. And the common people also, this bhakti, it's as simple as it is, is very uncommon idea. Because it's entirely different from the two tracks, as I said, that material life runs on of my and I. We want to own everything or we want to know everything. And in each instance, we want to be in the center. It's very worldly, both sides. Do you want to take from the world or you want to withdraw from the world? What's the center? The world. Not Krishna. Not Bhagwan, not God. Neither has anything to do with giving. But people will think like this. Oh, he's got so many people around him. He's got so much money, so many temples, so many books, and he rides in a car, and they have big fancy car, and they have bodyguards when he gets out, and then he gives the talk. Oh, man. He must be spiritual because he's got all these things. <laughs> People think like this, isn't it? Is this natural? Oh, and how many monks are living up there? <laughs> Three or four. Oh, oh, I guess I shouldn't have asked. I think. <laughs> guess he's not doing well. <laughs> God's not, you know, Bhagavan not giving him any kripa. Kind of got a group, big group. <laughs> People think like this. We think like this. To some extent, hmm? people think this is material conditioning. Another side, oh, he's renounced, just wearing ashes and hair, and you know, all unkempt and concerned with anything of the world. Our God is Krishna. What is he doing? He's herding cows, eating like anything. It's just like eating and eating and eating. Like I said, that deity Jagannath, he's eating fifty-six times a day. <laughs> And Krishna living in a forest, not in a big palace. His crown is a peacock's feather only. His ornaments are the different colored clays from the Vrindavan ground and decorating himself. It's difficult to understand him. And his devotees, they're all attached to him. They just want to be with him and one another. They live like ordinary attached people. They like the place Vrindavan. They never leave there. So this bhakti very difficult to understand because why? Because it is actually the central spiritual, the core of spirituality. And that is going to be difficult to understand in a world that is moving in an entirely different direction. Right? This is material life. And I'm talking about the two tracks on which it runs. Bhakti comes in the middle and it's practically lost. Therefore, what Vyas wrote so many things, and he was feeling unsatisfied. And Nard came to him and said, well, if you haven't really said it in un, you know, uncertain terms about bhakti, you've, got to, you've written in such a way that people will gravitate towards the karma marg or gyan marg, and you have to come out and say it. That is the great Granta Srimad Bhagavatam, where he did that. And this is what Mahaprabhu embraced as his heart, heartbeat, Srimad Bhagavatam. This is what he wants Sarvabhoma to embrace. And he did. Now, how is he writing this verse? Bhairagya Vidya Nija Bhakti Yogam. He's come given the Bhakti Yoga and it is full of Bhairagya and Vidya. Well, as I said, the fact of the matter is that Bhairagya, detachment and knowledge, Vidya, comes in the wake of Bhakti. Bhakti is, rather than trying to own everything or to know everything, is to serve the person who owns everything and knows everything. Become his friend. Save yourself so much trouble. Hmm. Neither could you have ever owned everything, or anything, for that matter, or to speak of everything. Nothing. Nothing belongs to you. And what can you know? Think about it. <laughs> what can you know? The brain is so small. Reasoning is such a limited and defective instrument for knowing. The fullness of the experience of life just through the filter of reason is, is just to miss out practically on everything. You know, just materially speaking, the most knowledgeable man, maybe some scientist, genius or something on earth, what does he know? What does he know? Think about it. On one speck of dust in the universe, he knows something. And not even anywhere near everything about that and how that works and so forth. And the vastness of the whole universe. What is this knowledge that we could acquire? It's insignificant. You think that we have an accurate reading of the nature of being and all the possibilities that life presents itself. 
by pursuing simply through the filter of our reasoning power, the defective instrument of reasoning. This is folly, absolute folly. That thing, reality, life is bigger than us. And if it chooses to express itself to us, reveal itself to us, its real nature, then we can know. And what will encourage it to do so when we approach it with love rather than with exploitation in mind, rather than trying to take it, own it, or to be it? If there's a wealthy and knowledgeable man and you approach him and he knows, oh, he wants my money, okay, give him something, send him away. Another person comes and he wants my knowledge. Okay, maybe give him a little knowledge, something, send him away. I'm not really interested in it. Another person comes and doesn't want the money, doesn't want the knowledge, just wants to serve that person. He says, come right in. <laughs> You're welcome. Then we can make some bond here. So to approach life like this is what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is teaching. This is what Bhakti is teaching. How to become a lover. And in the context of doing that, the power of love is so inconceivable. And when it's properly centered and so forth, this is Krishna Bhakti. This full idea of love Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is giving so powerful that this vairagya and vidya, renunciation, detachment and knowledge, they've come forward just like maidservants of the queen. Queen is Bhakti. They're like maidservants. They're, of course, coming behind her, offering who has Bhakti. Take me, knowledge. Take me, renunciation. And the devotees would say, I will take renunciation only much as it fosters bhakti. I'll have a natural inclination to not entertain things that don't foster bhakti. On the other side, I'll be mad after things that do foster bhakti. So, bhairagya vidyanija bhakti yoga, it means that in the context of the bhakti, his own bhakti, the bhakti that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu can give, this is the braj bhakti, what is needed in terms of renunciation, what is needed in terms of knowledge, whatever you need to know, whatever you need to avoid or give up, it comes automatically. Of course, it comes Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita. Janayati Ashu Vairagyam Gyanam Chai to come. Bhagavad says that very quickly, one who is engaged in bhakti, knowledge and detachment come to serve him or her. It means, Rupa Goswami says, at the stage of ruchi, this is accomplished. Ruchi is a stage in bhakti when what appears to be medicine chanting becomes food. When the avidya, ignorance, is destroyed by the power of bhakti, then that same bhakti that was medicine, the sweetness that is in it, can be tasted and it becomes, becomes the food of the devotee. Not medicine now. I'm living on that, hearing, chanting, honoring the prasad associating with the devotees, all these things that foster bhakti. Bhairagya vidya nija bhakti yoga. What is the vidya? Vidya vadhu jivanam, Mahaprabhu says in the Shikshastakam. Vidya vadhu. He says, Krishna nam, Sankirtan, the congregational chanting of Krishna nam. That nam is the life of the wife, he says, called knowledge. Vadu means life. Vidya vadu, jivanam. Jivanam means the life. Knowledge is the wife and the life. The wife is the life of the husband. Or it can be said the husband is the wife, the life of the, of the wife. <laughs> Either case. But this, in this term, this poetry, it's saying that the husband is the life of the wife. Well, it goes both sides, but... The husband is the wife of the life. So Krishna Nam is the husband, and this Vidya is the wife accompanying him. That means Krishna is accompanied by his Swarup Shakti. And this Swarup Shakti is Bhakti, this internal potency of Krishna. This is Bhakti, not the Shakti of the material world that makes everything run. It's the Shakti that moves the devotee, this Bhakti Shakti, Swarup Shakti. And this is the highest Vidya. It's just like Krishna says in Gita, what? In the ninth chapter of the Gita, he says, Raja Vidyam, Raja Guhyam. He said, I'm going to speak now about Raja Vidya. Raj Vidya. Raj means king, so the king of knowledge, royal knowledge, the highest knowledge. And what does he say then at the conclusion of that chapter? If you know it, say it out loud. He says, Man mana baba mad bhakto, mad daji mam namaskuru, me mami vaishasi satchanti, 
pati jani priyasi me. He says, manmana, here's the highest knowledge, he says. This is the king of knowledge. Manmana, think of me. This is the highest knowledge. Manmana, bhavamad bhakto, become my devotee. That's the highest knowledge. In other words, he's saying this bhakti is the highest knowledge. I've said before that love has kind of knowledge within it. When you love, you know what to do. It's automatic. And there's no extra baggage there of knowledge. It's essential knowledge. You know what to do to become happy. Love has a knowledge of its own. So this is the kind of knowledge that comes with his bhakti yoga, the surup shakti. And this means this special kind of knowledge in there of, of sambandha, relationship with Krishna, a particular sentiment that, that will bud in the blossom, flower in the devotee's heart, bear fruit for loving Krishna like a friend, like a lover, like a well-wisher even, like his mother. This is the kind of knowledge that comes with this bhakti yoga. And what is the detachment? What is the bhairagi that comes with it? This is the detachment. Sarvama showed it. Taking Mahaprasad. That's detachment? That's detachment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Taking prasad. Don't you understand? Yes, this is detachment. This is the right brain thinking. <laughs> I will only take the prasad that's been offered to Bhagawan. I will live on that. See? That is detachment. What is more central to life and living than eating and food? We need food to live. This is the devotee's, Sarvabhama's thinking. This is how I will live. On the remnants of the food of Bhagwan. This is detachment. Do you understand? <laughs> Mahaprabhu was very happy to see that in him. Oh, he's become completely renounced. In terms of my bhakti yoga, the kind of bhakti yoga I came to give. He would only eat for his livelihood. He would only take the remnants of the food first offered to me. You try to do that. Now, is that hard? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's hard. No, it's not hard, really. You to see, this is detachment. If you do that, you will be so renounced. And so much will come to you. So much knowledge will come to you from that. So this is the kind of vairagya and vidya that's inside that the bhakti yoga of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Vairagya vidya nidya bhakti yogam. He's teaching this. Shikshartameka. And he is Purusha Purana, he says. He's that Purusha Purana. Purusha means, this means, here it means God. And Purana means old. He's here today, he's saying. I'm writing this verse to him today, here, Jagi, Jagananda Pandit, you give it to him. Take it to him. That old God, I mean, in other words, who appeared long ago, Krishna, the ancient God, now here in a new form as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You're the same person. She Gaurhari, so he Goshtavihari. This Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna himself. And in a wonderful way, bringing his own bhakti yoga from his own Goloker, Premodhan, Hari Nam Sankirtan, Chaitanya Shishti, Nam Prem Sankirtan. The creation, this Vishwambar is maintainer of the universe. He has his own creation. This is Shishti Lila. He comes into the Shishti Lila, the Lila of creation. Vishnu's Leela, he comes into that as Vishwambar, the maintainer of the universe. And what does he give? He gives his own, it's his own creation. Chaitanya Shishti Prem Sankirtan. Bhagavatam says, Yatad Visargo Janatago Viplavo Yasmin Pratishlokum Vadabhatiyapi. Yatad Visargo. Visargo means creation. This Bhagavatam is another creation altogether. It's a whole different thing. And yasmin pratishlokam. One shlok, one line of this will change your whole life. Will take you out of the Shristi Lila and into Krishna Lila. Mahaprabhu coming into the Shristi Lila with his own creation. <laughs> Therefore he's Vishwambar, but he's Vishwam. Vishwambar means maintainer of the universe. But how is he maintaining the universe? Krishna Das Krabiraj tells us in Chaitanya Charitamrita. By praying. He's nourishing everyone with praying. This is what we're really living for. For love. Vishnu is maintaining us all, but not with prem. And that's what we're really living for. 
We will take our nourishment then from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He's that Purusha Purana. And Sri Krishna Chaitanya Sharidadhari. His name is Sri Krishna Chaitanya and Sharidadhari. This is his form. Sharidadhari. He carries this. His form is Kripambuddhi. We are living in Babambuddhi. Mahaprabhu says in another place, Ayi Nanda Tanujikin Karam Patitamam Bishame Babambudo. Babambudo. Baba Ambuddha. Ambuddhi means ocean. Bhava here means not Bhava, but Bhava. We want to be Bhavanam, not Bhavananda. <laughs> Bhava means, <laughs> I knew a Bhavananda. <laughs> material existence. Ocean of material existence. It is compared to an ocean in which we are drowning. There's no hope. Even if you drop, he's an Olympic swimmer in the middle of the ocean. No hope. No hope to reach the shore. Such is our position. So what do we need in this situation? We are in the Bhavambuddhi and we need Kripambuddhi. We need another ocean that is embodied in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu we saying. The very embodiment of Kripa, of mercy. Oceanic he is in his outreach. Namo Rupa Goswami said, Mahavadanaya. This is his character. He's Mahavadanaya, his guna, his quality. That he's not only Vadanaya, compassionate, magnanimous, generous, but Mahavadanaya. This is practical. Go and study all of Hinduism, all the different avatars. There are all different manifestations of Bhagwan. You cannot find any avatar. The measure of their compassion compares to that of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Krishna is Bhagavatsal. This is his most predominant quality, that he's very affectionate to his devotees. This is magnified in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You can study there in Chaitanya Charitamrita how he related to his devotees. With what kind of kindness and affection? It's inconceivable. Mahavadanaya, he said, Rupa Goswami. Mahavadanaya avatar. The world has never seen a descent of Bhagwan that has been more kind, more generous, more magnanimous in his outreach. Veritably, he is here in the words of Sarvuma, Kripambodhi, Sharidadadi. His body is a very ocean of mercy. This we need. We need an ocean of mercy to displace the ocean of material existence. And just like, this is the implication, we are swimming with no hope and drowning in the ocean of material existence by prapadyante, surrendering to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then we will be swimming and not swimming, but drowning in ocean of Kripa. Drowning in that. You see, this spiritual life is very much like material life. <laughs> It's not the, any of these in-between things that I was talking about earlier that look like spiritual life, maybe to some uninformed people. But just like material life is to be lost, like in love, and love knows no reason. People are unreasonable. They're lost. Spiritual life is like this, to be lost in love of Bhagavan. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu exemplified this, his form, as I said earlier, rising, falling in the kirtan on the ground getting up, falling again, dancing, swooning, passing out, tears pouring from his eyes and bathing into all directions as he looked. People, and these are historical facts. We have a different idea of history, of course. History of emotion, history of rasa, experienced in the hearts of the devotees and how they share that. It doesn't go in a linear way like ordinary history. But anyway, these are some historical nonetheless facts about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But in this way, rising and falling and swaying and dancing and just, like I've said before, a great waterfall of ecstasy of love. It just, you know, stand back. And, and then these Goswamis, people like Rupa Goswami, Sananda Goswami, and here Sarvama is doing the same thing. They're making that, taking that ecstasy and turning it into a lake by writing about it, what it is. So we can approach that and we can drink from that, we can bathe, we can swim in that. So in this way we uh, pay some tribute to Brihaspati Sarvabhoma appearing. Brihaspati means the guru of the gods. He appeared in Chaitanya Lila 
and made his life perfect by writing this verse. And he became perfect because all the devotees like it very much. And they memorized it, brought it, committed it to memory. As I said, Mugunda wrote it on the wall. There's two of them. We only have time to discuss one. And he's immortalized in his way. Sarvam Bhattacharya ki jai. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu ki jai. Jagannaswami ki jai. Gaurpuni Mahamutvatiti ki jai. Gaurpe Manande. We have time for some questions or comments. What is bhakti exactly? I have no idea. It's a big topic. I don't say that facetiously, but it's it's huge. But bhakti, it comes from the root word, Sanskrit, root bhaj, which means to give and to take. At the same time, it means to share and to take, to receive and to share. So it's something like, hard to translate, but something like love. And love is really about giving. Underneath the kind of foundation of love is sacrificing. It's putting aside my own interest for the sake of another's. Right? Yeah. Now, at a certain point we do that consciously. We realize, well, you know, maybe I have to do it even. So you do it almost unwillingly, but you're forced. Just by the nature of life, you have to make sacrifices. But after you're a little perceptive, you start to realize, hey, this guy is actually not bad. <laughs> the guy was pleased with me, and now he's nice to me. <laughs> you know, like maybe it's my father or something. You know, and he said, oh, so, I gotta, so I make a sacrifice to please him, and just see how he reacts. I do a little thing like that, and he's so appreciative and willing to increase my allowance or whatever may be the case. So you think, well, this kind of works, you know. This is good for me. You're thinking it from your perspective. But as you proceed along these lines, this is like secret of life, that life proceeds or progresses and the self expands and grows by giving. It's like transrational. In other words, you would think that by giving you'd be losing something. But the fact of the matter is by giving, we grow. The self contracts by taking. Selfishness makes us small, narrow, crippled, and our sense of self, it becomes smaller and smaller, actually. And by giving, the self expands. This is a mystery of life. It means life moves in a non-rational way in terms of moving progressively. So this is like at the foundation of bhakti. So we may be forced to sacrifice, but then we find out hey, it kind of worked out. It wasn't so bad after all. Then we come to the point of starting to do it voluntarily, voluntarily making sacrifices. As we sacrifice for another, we start to identify with that other. Like you do something for the earth, and you start to identify with the earth rather than just your property. <laughs> I'm only going to do it for my house. I'm going to do something for the community. Oh, no, I'm a community person. I'm identified with the community. I'm going to do it for the state. I'm identified with the state. I'm doing it for the country. I'm, my identity is now with, I'm an American. <laughs> citizen, I mean, whatever. <laughs> then I'm a member of the planet, you know. You see what I mean? Your, your self is expanding in this, your sense of self. So this all comes about by giving, actually. You're growing. And, I mean, we are interrelated with everything, but we don't see ourselves as interrelated with everything when our self is contracted. So we see ourselves at odds with other things. But as a sense of self grows and is identified with so-called other things, then they're not other anymore. The opposition is becoming diminished. There was no opposition. I was in opposition to the world, and it was reacting to me in that way. So as my sense of self expands like this, then the enemies go away, and you're getting bigger and bigger. It's you. <laughs> in other words, you're not everything, but you are at the same time. You're part of everything, it all works together and, uh, until you're growing like this. So, in a really very basic sense, this is what's at the heart of bhakti. That's why we say that what we're talking about here is something that's universal. It's not just some sectarian thing from some small group of people in India and they've got all these strange terms and weird dress and, and whatnot and they think it's really important and all. It could be understood like that, but if you listen carefully, you see we're talking about universal principles here that apply in all circumstances. We're just taking them 
to the full ramification of them. And that's how you end up in Krishna Leela. Now, you may not understand how the Krishna Leela has something to do with that, but it has everything to do with that. That's what this whole thing is about, this Leela. It's a big theological and philosophical discussion, but the center of it, the heart of it, is this giving and self-sacrificing. The sense of self grows. Look at how much bigger can you get. Krishna means Bhagwan. It means the center. And you can grow so big that you can conquer the center. Krishna means that the whole of reality has become subordinate to you out of love. You've conquered the world like everybody wants to, you know, conquer the world by allowing yourself to be conquered, so to speak, by giving. So bhakti is about giving and naturally then it's about getting because the fact of the matter is that, what do they say? To give is to receive. You've heard it, right? You got to try that out. I mean, all of us. You want to put it in a real simple English adage. This is what our whole thing is about here. To give is to receive. This is what it's about. And you get to the point where you realize that receiving is the giving, giving itself. So we do bhakti for the sake of bhakti, not for anything else. So at first you make a sacrifice because you have to. Then you may make a sacrifice because it works for you. Hey, I'm getting something from this. So your giving there is limited because you're attaching getting. You're making a bargain. I'm going to give and I know I'm going to get. So, okay, it's something. It's better than nothing. It's not the full idea of bhakti. But as you grow in that and you're getting, it becomes easier to give. And then you start to catch the idea that the giving is actually the getting. And now what do you want to do? You want to figure out how to give the most. How can I give the most? Where can I give entirely of myself? Where is that center that I can give that will bring the greatest remuneration? Just like in your body, you have to find where is that place if I put the food, the whole body will be nourished. It's not the, the ear or the hair. Or, you know, it's, it's in the mouth to the stomach. Then the whole body is mystically nourished. So there's a center whereby giving ourselves to everything will flourish and be nourished. And so that we teach here how to do that. And when we say Krishna, you, know, you, you think, oh, that blue guy with a flute, that's the center, but that's a whole huge philosophical discussion. Yes, so the center personifies in this way youthfulness, charm, romantic, lover, giver, supreme, taker, whose taking nourishes the giver. So something about the idea of bhakti. It means love. Good question. Anything else? Comment? Maharaj, you said we live for love. Can you elaborate a little more? How is it that we live for love? Everyone wants to be loved. <laughs> Don't you? <laughs> Who doesn't want to be loved? Everybody does. That's what everybody wants. Everybody wants to be loved and appreciated. and So we're living for that. So we're all living to have a relationship. We're defined also by relationships. We are living for reciprocal dealings, which is what love's about. So we, here we teach how to do it in such a way that it ends all suffering, all taking comprehensively. It awakens the self. The self grows, as I said, expands. And you see there's a difference between yourself and you experience it and the body. And you see that you're not in one place. You're kind of in all places and by attachment to Krishna, who's all-pervading. You become, that's a whole different perspective on things. So, what else? Any other question? Yes. You make the distinction a lot in the world of bhakti between Raj bhakti, which is based on the intimacy, and the other, which is based on, on reverence and there's a distance. I'm thinking about that. It seems that I do have some attraction to on reverence. Mahabharata is watching the world, you know, he's, he's kind of got this impartial watch over everybody, and there's kind of this sense of like compassion and mercy in that. In Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's two sides to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and that is Yuga Avatar, who's showing compassion everywhere, giving Krishna Sankirtan, and then the internal side of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and the reasons for which he descended to experience them and so forth. And so it's natural that in the beginning we'd be a little more attracted to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Yuga Avatar side. It's more relates to us. So that's natural and that's appropriate. And in time then, 
when you take advantage of this compassion, then you go relieved from the suffering of material existence and so forth, and then you can better enter into the inner world of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We know, theoretically, that there are two sides. We take advantage of the one that's most appropriate for us at the time. So everyone should do Vaidhi Bhakti. We should have this ideal in mind, Rag Bhakti, and that makes our Vaidhi Bhakti, Rag Bhakti, kind of, it's without a taste, without real feeling for that. But this is the course everyone should take, do Vaidhi Bhakti, and know this, I want to have this Prayojan, Prayam Prayojan. So, we worship Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with awe and reverence as a das. And when he sees fit, then bring you to his internal side. And it's natural that those in material existence will identify with the compassionate nature and outreach of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu more than with Krishna, lost in his own world. All right, so are we ready for the Arctic? Yeah. All right. Sri Gaur Arctic, he died.